What, which, this, that, or the other? From Bonnaroo to Coachella, traversing the music festival landscape can be tricky. That's where we come in with high fives for everyone. The What Podcast with Brad, Barry, Lord Taco, dedicated to exploring the entire festival scene. Brad has worked in the radio industry for more than 20 years and currently lives in Brooklyn, where he is program director for three stations, including one in New York, one in Detroit, and one in Miami. Barry's been a reporter for the Chattanooga Times Free Press, covering all aspects of the entertainment industry since 1987. That's before you were born. Lord Taco, the smart guy who makes these podcasts on our website at thewhatpodcast.com work. Also really good at identifying babies, loves blue-haired moms, PBR, and his beautiful Volkswagen bus. We all fell in love with the Bonnaroo Festival years ago, not only because of the amazing bands that play there every year, but also because of the incredible community spirit that has developed around it. Radiate positivity. And we really like talking about the inside baseball stuff when it comes to putting on a huge music festival. So join us. You can hear the What Podcast on the Consequence Podcast Network or anywhere you find your favorite podcasts. Consequence Podcast Network. Welcome to Going There, the crossroads where music and mental health meet. This season of Going There is brought to you by AbV, who is driving the pursuit of better mental health. Over the last 30 years, AbV scientists and clinicians have worked to tackle the complexity of mental illness. And today, offer a portfolio of medicines and a pipeline of innovation that spans depression, anxiety, bipolar 1 disorder, and schizophrenia. To learn more about AbbVie's work to support individuals throughout their mental health journey, please visit www.abvie.com or follow at AbbVie on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and LinkedIn. This episode of Going There is also supported by Sage Therapeutics, Sage Therapeutics is a biopharmaceutical company fearlessly leading the way to create a world with better brain health. Their mission is to pioneer solutions to deliver life-changing brain health medicines so every person can thrive. For more information, please visit www.sagerx.com. Today, we are talking with singer-songwriter and musician Noah Kahn. You may know Noah from his song Stick Season and Dial Drunk. And Noah just dropped a new version of the single Dial Drunk that is a collaboration with Post Malone. One review of Noah's music said that he has become one of the most recognizable voices in acoustic indie pop, thanks to his alpine voice and sucker punch to the heart lyrical style. Noah just began a North American tour, including playing the Austin City Limits Festival in October. Then Noah begins a European tour in November. Check out all Noah's music, tour, and merch info at noahcon.com. Now, on the Going There podcast, we have the tough conversations to address important issues so we can learn from each other, challenge the stigma of mental illness, and get the care we need. And one very difficult issue that many of us face on our mental health journey is that we become frightened of ourselves, especially if we struggle with mental illness. Our emotions and thoughts can often be very powerful, painful, and overwhelming. We sometimes don't feel in control of our behavior, and we may have suffered difficult and even traumatic interpersonal interactions with others. All of these potential experiences can make us feel like we are afraid of ourselves, what we will feel, think, do, and confront in our lives. 
And Noah shares his experience struggling with anxiety and depression and has previously described feeling like he has dark thoughts and feelings and is scared of his brain. Now, when we struggle with our mental health, it is very understandable that we become afraid of our own powerful and often painful experiences. But we often face a complicating factor in our mental health journey. On the one hand, our experiences are painful and we just want them to go away. But on the other hand, we may be concerned that somehow in the process of getting help, we may lose aspects of ourselves that we want to keep in some sense. And this concern may interfere with our getting the help we need for our mental health and well-being. So for example, Noah and I talk about the concept of how some people are concerned that taking medication for mental illness may improve mental health in some ways, but in the process may also make someone more numb or disconnected. And this may be a particular concern for creative people whose art may rely in some ways on connecting with deep and perhaps painful emotions as subjects for works of art such as songs. We also discuss how perhaps therapies for depression and anxiety encourage us not to isolate, in part to get us out of our own head. This may be helpful because that isolation can further feelings of loneliness and depression. But sometimes when we isolate, it's an opportunity to try to figure out what's going on with us and perhaps take a bit of time to rest and heal. Similarly, while we may want to challenge painful thoughts that may make us anxious or depressed, if we completely dismiss or ignore our thoughts, we may miss opportunities to better understand our experience, who we are, and what matters to us. And so, on our mental health journey, as we seek to get help, we may feel that we are faced with tough choices about how to balance wanting to feel better, less anxious or less depressed, with not suppressing or avoiding certain parts of our experience that may be painful, but are part of a holistic sense of who we are. And Noah and I talk about the use of the term busyhead in this context. Noah previously launched the Busyhead Project to raise money to provide resources for mental health awareness and mental health programs. And I really like his term busyhead as a way of understanding how some people feel on their mental health journey. It seems to me like a destigmatizing way of looking at the pros and cons of having an active mind. I like the idea of understanding someone as having an active mind that can contribute to anxiety and depression if we are not careful, but can also be a powerful tool in leading a healthy and fulfilling life by allowing us to be curious, creative, and inquisitive. And this kind of concept, having a busy head, can be the type of reconceptualization of our experience that may help us treat the painful symptoms of anxiety and depression without losing a part of ourselves that we value. And this approach may make us feel a little less afraid of our brains on our mental health journey. Now, as we progress through this season of going there, our goal is to bring you, the audience, further into the conversation. We'd love to hear your feedback, questions you have that have been sparked by our conversations with these incredible artists, and topics you'd love to see addressed. If you enjoy the show, please leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. These help other folks find their way into the conversation so they can go there with us. So let's go there and listen to what Noah has to say. Hey, Noah, welcome to Going There. Thanks so much for having me today. I appreciate it, Mike. So let's start off with one of your songs that you feel like best represents your mental health journey. Sure. Yeah, I think a lot of, they all kind of represent a part of my mental health journey. But, uh, you know, as mental health is something I always struggle with that it finds its way into each and every one of my songs, I believe. But I think Growing Sideways in particular speaks a lot to my mental health journey, particularly my journey with antidepressants and medication and therapy. There's another song called No Complaints that it's kind of try, try to describe my experience 
trying to be creative and trying to exist on antidepressants and looking how it was different from my experience off of them. So one of the things that people will worry about when they consider taking any kind of psychotropic medication, and particularly I think antidepressants, is that it will somehow, while it, it improves mood potentially, that it will somehow limit them in terms of their range of feelings. And for someone who's struggling with creativity, that might be a particular not someone struggling with creativity, I should say, someone no, who, right. who makes a living out, uh, you know, with creativity, you know, that might be a particular issue. And so I don't know if you feel comfortable sharing kind of what your experience was in terms of your creativity when you were on or off antidepressants. Yeah, that's a great question. It's kind of one of those lifelong journeys for me. Uh, I've been on and off medication since I was about 17, 16 years old. So and I've been creative and making music since I was eight. So I've been, uh, you know, definitely being creative has been a huge part of my life and, and medication has been a big part of my life as well. And so it's been a real balancing act. I think for me, what is mostly, mostly important is being able to wake up every morning and exist in the world in a way that allows you to get out of bed. There are baseline needs that a person has. And for me, that is being able to get out of bed, to being able to be social and to experience, you know, socializing. Uh, to feel like I can exist. And there have been a lot of times in my life that without medication and without the kickstart that medication gave me, I don't think I'd be able to do that. And if you can't do that, you can't sit down to write music, you can't have a career. So you have to take care of your health and your mind first, I think. Um, my experience in terms of creativity has been different with different medications. On, on, Zo on Prozac, I definitely felt a little bit more blunted creatively um, and kind of this feeling of not not caring, but kind of being indifferent to it and writing music and thinking, oh, I wrote something, so it's good, you know? And the one thing that's so painful about making music is that a lot of the time you put your entire soul into it and your whole heart into it. And it feels like you're going to die if you don't make a good song. And that is something that off medication, I definitely accessed and it forced, you know, me to really, really try to beat myself and try to make a great song every time. And even though it was painful in the moment, I would get good music out of it. And eventually that pain became too great for me to deal with. And so I went to medication. And the irony is that getting on medication to help me feel better actually made it harder for me to access the pain that allowed me to write great music. And um, until I got on Zoloft, which is a, you know, a different medication, but kind of working for the same thing, an SSRI, I didn't realize that I could still be creative on, on my antidepressants and on my medication. Zoloft was definitely still had a bit of a bunting effect, but it allowed me to look at my mood more critically. It allowed me to be more objective with myself. And even though it kind of made me feel sometimes a bit removed from the creative process, looking back now that I'm actually not on meds at the moment, which I hopefully will be back on them soon, looking at the songs that I wrote on Zoloft, they actually are great songs. They were honest and they do feel real. And so it's been interesting to have this perspective of, you know, being on medication and writing music, being off of it and looking back at that music or being back on medication and looking at the music I wrote on a different medication and kind of seeing how that creativity has fluctuated. I think to kind of sum it up though, I think there's definitely ways to be creative on medication. I think it's an adjustment and you'll have to make a lot of adjustments when you get on medication, I believe. So it's another adjustment to be made. It's something to keep track of. And it's definitely not black or white. You can or you can't. Now, for different people, anxiety and depression can manifest in different ways. And if you feel comfortable, could you talk about how it tends to manifest for you, both of those things? Yeah, I think for me, a big theme in my life, especially when I'm feeling incredibly anxious or and a lot of times what happens is my anxiety kind of get so great that it becomes a depression and I start to feel depressed and it's that's kind of like vicious cycle of trying to get out of it and falling back into it. Um, but what I think manifests the most is this feeling of needing to isolate myself and to feel 
like I just need to get away and be on my own because people don't understand or people are, I'm feeling judged by people or, you know, pr projecting my own feeling of resentment towards myself on other people. And, and so I feel like I'm not going to do this to myself and I'm not going to do this to you. So I need to go be alone. And then you spend time alone and you can really drown. I really drown in those thoughts and I really feel, um, vulnerable and alone, obviously, even though I made myself be alone. But I think when I start to isolate myself is when I start to really recognize that I'm going through uh, a flare up of anxiety and a flare up of depression. You know, for me, it's also kind of like binge behaviors, binge eating. For me, I'm a weed smoker. So smoking a lot of weed or playing a lot of video games or spending a lot of time on my phone, just kind of escaping, I think, from what I'm worried about feeling, uh, escaping through eating or through, you know, drugs or alcohol. Those are definitely ways that my anxiety and depression manifest. So, you know, I, I tend to have a very, uh, mixed view on the concept of isolating when we're anxious or depressed. And I'm kind of curious your thoughts on this. My, my feeling is that if we treated mental health issues, the way we treat physical health issues, the concept of isolating could be an opportunity to protect and to heal. You know, so if someone says like, listen, I've, I've got, you know, I've got a flu or I've got, you know, a cold, like it, it's no problem for mm -hmm. people to say, Hey, listen, I need to take a few days and people are like, Hey, get better, whatever. And oftentimes I, I feel as though people, when they struggle with anxiety and depression, if the quote unquote isolation was somewhat sanctioned and it was supported, mm -hmm it would be more curative and more healing now, but I don't know, not everyone agrees with that. And so I'm kind of curious your perspective of whether when you isolate it's, it's part of what's, what's difficult about that is that, you know, you're not sure how other people are going to react or do you feel like it then just really makes things worse for you? I think, yeah, it's a really cool point. And it's interesting you bring that up. I think isolating for me is broad. And like, I think isolating as a term is broad, right? Like I think if you go home and you take time to yourself and you call a therapist or you allow yourself, you know, to give yourself some help in that, in that space that you're giving yourself, you know, giving yourself some time and space to be alone, but doing things that are going to be helpful for you, then I think that can be really healthy. I think for me, isolating goes hand in hand with cutting off contact and with indulging in behaviors that I know aren't good, that I can do without the judgment of other people or the eyes of anybody else. So I think when I isolate, I feel like I kind of drift back into a lot of different behaviors under that umbrella of being alone. Um, whereas I think, you know, when you have a cold, yeah, you have a cold, but you know it's going to be over in a few days. Whereas for me, mental health has always been a fluctuating thing that I have to really keep a hold on and keep track of because it's not going to go away after four days or after I drink a lot of water. It's, uh, it's something that's a constant in my life and something that I have to constantly be checking in on. I also find that with the stigma, there's just so much stigma around, you know, being struggling with mental health issues. And there is, that doesn't really exist around the common cold. So I totally agree. I, th I wish we could approach it in the same way. Uh, and I've dedicated a lot of my career and a lot of my life to trying to make that easier for, for myself and for people that might be listening to my music. Yeah. And one of the things that you talk about as part of the Busy Head Project, and th this is a horrible feeling, but I feel like the way you articulated it was so on point is that you describe having dark thoughts and feelings and being scared of my brain. And that to me is something that so many people who struggle with their mental health feel and can often be the difference between whether isolating can even be a healing experience. Because like you said, if you're, if you're kind of okay with pulling back, letting everybody know, Hey, I, I need some time. And you can, you can process things. And you, like you say, you call a therapist, reach out to the right friends. 
that can be that can be healing. But if the idea of being alone with your thoughts is the scariest thing possible, then naturally you're going to go, not you, but anybody would go things like the video games, the pot, and it, it would tend to rev things up. And so I'm really curious, this concept that, that you said of being scared of my brain. Yeah, it is a, it's a really hard feeling to feel like the one person that you're always with is someone you can't rely on. And it can be a prison for sure. And once you let those kind of thoughts become the norm or become the ones you believe, I, I, I read a stupidly enough, like a long time ago, something that really helped me was a bumper sticker in a parking lot in Hanover, New Hampshire. It said, uh, don't believe everything you think. And I think for so long, I thought in my head, these fears feel so rational and they feel so all consuming and intelligent and sophisticated and unbeatable until I started questioning them a little bit and wondering why I was thinking that. And and you kind of do start to notice patterns and ripples and your your brain, my therapist always describes it as, a, as like a track and your brain has always been in this track. And so it's easiest to go down it. And once you start kind of trying to divert those thoughts a little bit, it takes a long time, but you can rewire the reasons that you're, fe you're feeling these feelings. Um, so it is really tough to feel like you're alone in your brain and to feel like you're afraid of your own thoughts. And I think it's scary. And I think it takes a lot of cur courage and bravery to kind of challenge those. And for me, it's taken a lot of help. And I've been lucky. And as you know, and as I know, it's not a, it's a privilege to be able to go to therapy once a week. It's expensive and it's hard to find access for in a lot of places. And so I'm really grateful for that because I've needed a lot of help in my life from friends and family and from my therapists, from medication to, you know, conversations with people like you to help me rewire those thoughts and make it so it's not such a scary place. One of the things that can be a very tricky balance for people, especially when you're scared of your own thoughts is there, there's, you know, what some people will talk about something like dialectical behavior therapy, the paradox between acceptance and change, where there's, there's a sense of, okay, I have a whole bunch of thoughts. How do I validate them to start and say, okay, like I accept the fact that they're here and I kind of want to try to figure out which ones are the ones that I want to stick with and which are the ones that I want to maybe review and, and, and change as an output. And I'm kind of curious because I find that to be a very difficult concept because if, if you tell yourself, not you, but anyway, tells yourself that everything you're feeling is irrational, that may be soothing when you're in a bad spot, but then you start thinking like, well, wait a minute, if everything I'm thinking is irrational, how do I land anywhere? Yeah. But at the same time, you know, like you said, you don't want to believe that everything you're thinking is your final answer. And so I'm kind of curious, like sort of how you balance those concepts because you know to be honest like a lot of the way that you write from where i'm sitting is is actually validating negative thoughts it's not necessarily saying this is where i'm going to end up but it's sort of like hey i i get it i, I that, that's how when i listen to your music that's the feeling i get is that you're kind of saying to the audience look i not intentionally maybe but like ultimately i i kind of get it yeah for you know? sure they're real and they're they're just because they're thoughts and maybe they maybe they're irrational or coming from a place of confusion or being unsure of something it doesn't mean they're not real feelings and i think it's a great the great the great thing you said is like they might they're not all irrational and you shouldn't say like everything i'm feeling is wrong i think it's like what you said it's it's being brave enough to evaluate everyone and to sit there and think is this is this something that's real or where is this coming from and and there you'll find some thoughts i i mean and i'm speaking very generally i'm not a licensed therapist or i have no 
real plat. I have no real. I'm not going to jump my soapbox. This is my own, just from my own experience. I found that. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, if, if we can, I'm going to challenge that in the spirit of what we're talking about. The, I, I don't have any real or whatever. There's a reason why we're talking to you because you know what you're talking about. So, all right. <laughs> Cool. <laughs> we don't want to. We don't want to. We, we don't. We don't want to say that we're uh, allowing these kind of thoughts to happen and then not challenge that particular one. I listen. Working yeah. example right here. That's called insecurity. Yeah, in my experience, the thoughts that are the most scary are the ones that I, I let the fear drive me and then I push them away because I don't want to think about them anymore. And then they come back and then I push them away because I want to. Think, I want to. I think challenging them has been has been the biggest victory for me. Is is you know finding out why I might be feeling that way questioning their legitimacy, understanding if there's a deeper cause that's legitimate, that's causing me to feel those things, thinking them and challenging them and saying, is this, is this, first of all, the best use of my energy? Is this a problem I can solve right now? And is this a fear that is founded in total reality or part reality and part fiction? And it's all about finding out what you can do to control, fix, or evaluate the thing that's causing the validity, validity of the fear. Whereas there's always a part of it that seems worse in your head, in my opinion, in my experience. I've I found that like writing, literally writing them down is super helpful. They, they feel confusing and they feel like, you know, like a dream sequence from a shitty movie when, when you're thinking about being afraid like that. And when you write them down, it feels like a script and you can read like, oh, this is why this is happening and here's what's happening here. And it makes them smaller and more manageable. So I think to separate them, it's important to consider them and to evaluate them and to allow yourself to feel like a doctor for a second and to look at thoughts objectively and critically. Yeah, you know, I, I like, the idea, you know, because it's sort of like this question of like, why do we have feelings? It's like my my sense is that we have feelings to a certain degree to signal that there's something going on and mobilize some kind of action. So to some degree, as the the optimal situation is that we can as quickly as possible validate and understand where we're coming from, figure out like what's in play here, you know, and then like you said, come to some come to some answer. And I, I, I've been trying something recently with my own negative thinking when it's really beating down on me. Like I'm, I almost think like it's like a, another person, if another person were saying this to me, mm -hmm. at some point I would just be like, all right, listen, you have called me names for like the last hour. Can like, what, what is it that you want from me? Like what, what is, where is this all going? Let, let's just say that everything you just said to me, I'm, a, I'm the biggest piece of shit on the planet. And like, you know, you should be ashamed of yourself and all this kind of stuff. So what do you, what do you want me to do with that? Mm -hmm. And I'm not even asking rhetorically, like what specifically is it that you want me to do? Is there a there, there in this situation? Or are you just walking around like beating the crap out of me emotionally? And, and for some reason, and I've only been trying it recently, it, it's, it's kind of helped clarify a little bit because sometimes there is something it's like, and then I, you know, if there is like a point, it's like, Hey, you shouldn't have done that. And you got to apologize to that person. It's like, well, you know, like you could have said that. Right. Quicker. Like you didn't need to, you didn't need, and, and, and maybe I wasn't listening, you know, right. it was always like, Hey, so if I wasn't listening and you felt like you had to call me a piece of shit, like in order to get me to apologize, that's fine. But could we, could we come up with something a little, little, little softer next time, which I find very difficult personally without however many years I've been doing this. Yeah. Kind. Totally. And in, in your head or in my head, it feels like we deserve the punishment because we did something bad. And, you know, maybe you've done something wrong or maybe you've done something that you need to reevaluate or reconcile with. And that's okay. I think fundamentally we're human and that those things are going to happen. I think we can punish ourselves as much as we want, but it doesn't fix the action or inaction that needs to be taken. Like punishment is almost useless. It's almost useless. I think that 
it's it's important to recognize, but not, um, you know, castigate. And you know, it's interesting because I I find that so many of the people I work with will talk about at the end of the day, it's like, why are you doing this? And they they very legitimately feel because it will motivate action. And part of the problem with negative thinking and part of the problem with, with shame and, and the anxiety is that it works just enough to let us believe that it's a workable model. You know, like say like we, we wouldn't keep it around if it didn't have any value. And it's like a lot of people will look back and think to themselves, well, there were times where I really was down on myself and I was really negative about myself and I, I gutted it out and I did something really cool. You know, it's like, it's like everybody's got that time and, you know, like in high school or college where they, they didn't eat anything for like two months and they exercised for 17 hours. And they were like, I really liked how I looked then, but then I spent the next like 30 years, like not being able to do that again. And right. for some reason, people really do believe that shaming themselves will motivate action. And it has every so often for people, which is what makes it even more complicated. Yeah, I think you're right. I don't recommend it. But I, I do think there's an element of, they, like you said, it exists in society for a reason. It always has. It's a, almost like an instinct. I feel like shame doesn't, again, really exist with a lot of critical thinking. I think it's more of an emotional response to an event or to a feeling. And it's an acceptable and understandable route. But I think we should try to challenge it where we can. You know, and I, on that point, I really liked the lyric, it hurts when you hurt somebody. Mm-hmm. And I really, I really dug that because it was so simple and so straightforward, but I feel like it speaks to this, right? When you say like, it hurts when you hurt somebody, but, and, and you can see it when you do it with someone else, you know, you hurt somebody and you're like, oh man, like I, I don't, I'm looking at the pain that I just caused you. And now I feel badly, Yeah, you know, I'm empathizing with your pain, but when we do it to ourselves, we never say it hurts when right. you hurt somebody. You know, and I feel like that's, that's kind of what we're talking about here is that shame is that like, is that, listen, yeah, it may work one out of 10 times, but nine out of 10 times, not only are you hurting yourself, but then you're also going to wind up feeling badly about hurting yourself. And the shame cycle is just going to get worse and worse and worse. Totally. I think there's a real, at least for me, I feel like there's a bit of a masochism to all of it, where it's like, I... I'm so used to feeling this kind of pain that when I do something bad to myself, it no longer feels like pain. It simply feels like existing. And that's just what existence has always been for me. And that is, I, I find that, you know, because for me, it's kind of like what you were saying at the beginning, you know, anxiety feels very natural for me. And then at certain points, the, the, it kind of wears you down to the point where you get depressed. And also like the thinking, it's like anxiety is like, you think something bad's going to happen. And depression is, you know, something bad's going to happen. But if you say to yourself a thousand times, you think something bad's going to happen at some point, you're like, ah, you know, I, I guess something is really going to happen. Mm-hmm. And, and one of the things that I find very tough is that when you are anxious or when you are depressed or when you feel ashamed and then things happen in the world that could confirm that they feel more real to you. Even right. if you do nine good things and you do one thing that's not so great, you're like, that's the one that feels real because it's what matches this bio, this biology that I have. Like the good things I'm doing does not match the depression I'm feeling at all. That feels like, I, I don't, I don't get that. But that one time I screwed up, that feels real. And then I feel like people gather those thoughts because it almost feels like this is real. And the other thing just isn't because it feels so real. Cause it, I mean, it does 
when you're depressed, things that are good or positive don't feel real. They just feel kind of like, man, that's happening somewhere else to somebody else. Yeah, they they don't confirm where you you know where you've been for so long. I think we yeah you know like I like it's just like what you just said. Like I'll read ninety nine or a hundred comments, and ninety nine of them will be you know this is wonderful and thank you, and one of them will be like oh, I don't really like it, and I'll sit around and I'll think about how much I dislike that comment, how upset it makes me and feel bad. I'll think about the comment all day because deep down we are what we think of ourselves and we can only believe what we've already confirmed in our own minds. And I, I think you're right. Like it's so easy to to disregard any kind of positive thing or to ignore it or to maybe not even see it because you're obsessed or focused or perseverating on the negative all the time. And it feels so natural. And those grooves exist in your brain and you ride them every day and you're not looking out the sides to see the positivity or staring straight ahead at the negativity. It's definitely true. Yeah. And, and to some degree, you know, again, the reason it hangs around is because I don't know that we really know what to do with negative experiences. Like if there, it's, it's interesting because you, um, if I'm, if I read correctly, you and Wes Schultz collaborated. Yes, uh, we did. And, and I, I, I talked to Wes a, a few years back and he, he really, Change. It was really very influential in terms of how I think about mental health. And one of the stories that he told me, whether I don't know if it was him or it was, I think it was Bono who he was toy with, told the story about Bruce Springsteen and how at the beginning of every performance, he tells the band, you didn't earn this, right? Like just starting from that place of like, let's start from, let's start from the ground. And let's right. go earn it, which is at least my experience is how Bruce Springsteen like plays, you know, his shows. And it, it, it was interesting to me because that model of starting with like, what can I learn is as opposed to let me not judge this or whatever, just what can I learn from it? Which is what I took away from that is, is the only way that I've ever been able to make anything out of negative thinking, but it's so hard to do because it's like, you gotta then take something in. And sometimes what you learn is like, look, you can't make everybody happy. Yeah. Yeah, that, that might be the lesson there. But there's always that fear that there's something else. And if you're open to it, well, then you can apply that to any situation and you have to accept that, hey, I've learned this lesson already. But I, I find that to be incredibly difficult when it comes to negative thinking. Absolutely. I've actually found like in almost every song that I found that I've written of my own that I've loved and found to be great. I've written that when I was at my most rock bottom place and a most fundamentally lost place because it feels like there's no deeper way to judge myself than I already have that day or that month or whatever amount of time I've been in that cycle for. Like there's no way to go further down. And so all I really have is perspective now and uh, all this different thoughts. And you kind of we reach this weird and kind of fucked up clarity. It's kind of like after you cry, like if you have a good long cry and you're crying in your mom, your girlfriend, your husband, or whoever's arms for a little while, you feel this sense of having exposed yourself to be so vulnerable that you can actually access it for a little while. And sometimes I find that when I get to that really dark place of having really beat myself up for a week, I kind of have this weird freedom in that vulnerability. I, I, I do think it's a hard place to be and I don't love knowing that that's the truth, but I, I found a lot of my best songs have come from kind of reaching that rock bottom and then just looking up and everything feels good from there. Yeah. And, and sometimes I wonder whether that is the message that we were not getting is that, you know, getting back to originally what we, you know, we talked about being scared of my brain, you know, it, I, I wonder sometimes if, 
if that lesson when we keep perseverating on negative thoughts is listen as as much as it's natural as much as it's understandable and as painful as it is being scared of your brain is just there's there's a limit because there's only there's only so far you're going to be able to calm yourself there's only so far that you're going to be able to understand yourself and sometimes i i wonder when we have those negative thoughts or something bad happens if we started with listen i know i'm afraid i know but let's just try to be a little bit more vulnerable a little bit more open a little bit more accepting as best as you can to what might be going on right now and then take it to that problem solving place that sometimes i wonder whether that's the lesson because i know for me personally i think that's always been something that i've struggled with is as much as i'm like you know ashamed and i have all these negative emotions am i really open to something negative about myself and right. in the past i look back and i'm like man i don't know i don't know if i was or if i am yeah that's a good point like worrying about being perceived negatively or worrying about being a negative person than actually not having experienced someone feeling that way. It's like, do I, can I reconcile these two things? Am I really ready for that? Like, you know, like I, even though no, how negatively I, I think about myself when I'm at my lowest, like when something bad happens, I still feel surprised and shocked by it. And it still hurts in a different way. I think it's because so much of anxiety is fantasy in a way for me. Like so much of it is actually never really going to happen. Like these are things that I worry about that I think are sure are going to happen. And I can, I can prepare my body for them and they never do. And then something happens that's always more nuanced than that. And it feels surprising and you kind of, it, it pulls you out of that for a second. And it's a, a different experience than what you're experiencing with that inner dialogue every day, for sure. Yeah. And it's like one of the things that I, I've wondered about if I haven't ever been able to kind of accept and, and how simple it would be, but how hard is like, just kind of like the way you're talking about, it. it's like, look, I, I got a, I got a biology here that can bubble up. And I, I think to how long you know, how long, like, I just wouldn't want to admit that. Like I might be a little bit more baseline agitated. I might, happiness may not come so easily. And it's right. almost like I would rather, I would almost rather think that there's definitely something like this person definitely hates me, you know, or I really did this thing wrong. And, and because that's the only thing that could explain this feeling as opposed to like this bigger reality of like, you know, you, you may just roll kind of negative. And if you can kind of, if you can sit with that, it, 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 it's, it's scarier on one level, but once you can kind of get underneath it, it's not quite so scary. Cause then be like, all right, all right. I'm, you know, yeah. I'm kind of in that space. I actually like, I find like my way of thinking is very much the way you just described where it's like, I, I look at it from like a more of a clinical, I try to look at it from more of a clinical and like biology, chemistry view. Like I will feel these things more negatively. It's how my brain is set up. I, my baseline will be to recede into myself or to be anxious or to be sometimes more judgmental. And there are ways to, I think, improve that. I think there are ways to, with that knowledge, you can find ways that make it easier. Like for me, like eating well, working out, sleeping, socializing, you know, meditating, help me kind of get away, get into the better side of that biology. But it does help me to understand myself in a, in a light like that, where like I can understand why I might be feeling that way. Instead of letting my brain wander to whatever conspiracy theory it's created this week and hope that it leads me back to a healthy place. Eventually I find that the things I can control are what I know about myself. Yeah. And that, I, I really like that. And I would, with almost everyone I work with, the, I always talk about like the big four. I was like, until you're sleeping well, eating healthy, exercising, your substances are managed, both like substances like pot alcohol and also your medications or whatever they're supposed to be. It's like, 
I don't know that we can know everything about you because, because the thing is, is that a bad night's, you know, a bad night's sleep can evoke, at least for me, the same terror as having a negative social event. Totally. And mo- a, a lot of the people, in fact, I would say most of the people that come to me for panic come to me, their first panic attack is when they're hung over yeah. and they just don't know what they don't. I mean, there's, there's really nothing going on. In fact, oftentimes they had a great night. It was like wonderful. And they're waking up thinking like, oh my God, I just had this really fun night. And now something really just bad is happening and they don't know what it is. And then the, the fear of panic really takes over. And, and I, I find that that's one of the toughest things for people to wrap their heads around because I think your brain cannot always tell the difference between, you know, like they say, like you, your, your brain can't tell if you're lifting a weight or if you're lifting your body weight, you know, it's yeah. like, I don't think your I don't think your, your brain can tell the difference between being something's off because you didn't sleep well or you were drinking and because someone just rejected you. I think your brain just immediately is like something's wrong. And then, you know, everything just starts going at that point. Yeah. A hundred percent. I completely empathize with that hunger, like being exhausted. Like I spent the 4th of July with some friends and I had a great time, but I didn't get any sleep. And the next three days until like this morning even have been like horrible, like awful. Like I've been feeling like I've regressed. I was talking to my therapist. I said, I feel like I, I just feel like I'm back in this mode that I feel like I've gotten out of and I can't believe it. The reason I felt like I was back in the mode is because I didn't drink for a while and I focused on my sleep and I got off tour, which is obviously tough for sleeping with the bus, but I got off tour and I got a lot of sleep and I ate well and I've been fishing and working out and spending time outside. Um, And it felt like, oh my God, like I must've done something terrible. Like I can't believe how bad life is right now. And it's really just because I haven't given myself the, the, (laughs) I haven't given myself the reasons to heal or be better. And and no, it sounds like, I feel like when I first started therapy, like that advice would always piss me off when they were like, well, are you sleeping? Are you eating? It felt like, oh, like boomer, like you don't know what I'm going through. You're just like giving me like the Navy advice for getting through life. And it's honestly, it's so valid. It's so true. It's changed my, it's changed my life, like eating well, sleeping well. And I still struggle and I'm, well, have lots of things I need to work on. But if I, I like to bring in my problems to somebody after I've given myself a good night's sleep and after I've had some food to eat and taken a walk and, and meditated a little bit, because at least I can give myself a chance to look at these problems and see if they can be fixed as simply as getting a nap. Yeah. I mean, I, I got, this was like 20 years ago and I would try everything for depression and anxiety and not that nothing worked, but nothing consistently worked. And I, I stumbled accidentally on a routine where I would be like, as soon as I felt it for like a few days, I would be like, okay, I am going to sleep. I don't ever sleep, eat and exercise or sleep, exercise and eat. Mm -hmm. And I would do it sometimes three times a day. Like I would be like, okay, I'm going to get some sleep. I'm going to wake up, have something to eat and exercise, get some sleep, wake up, have something to eat, exercise, whatever. I forget which exact order was. And what usually three days later, I was in a better spot and you know, it's like, and then I just realized I was like, wow, I was like, I really do not manage my biology well at all. Mm -hmm. And it, I I definitely, I mean, I don't know if I'm sleeping multiple times a day is always good for people. Or possible. Yeah. Yeah. But, but, but for me, like coming up, like what you said, and just being like, all right, before I make any big judgments here, it's like that. Okay. It's like that validation. Like, look, I'm having these negative thoughts. I'm listening but I just want to clear up some possibilities here. Like what if I slept? What if I ate? What if I exercised? What if I went fish and did something I like? If the thoughts are still there, then I've cleared away some other explanations. Yeah. I think yeah. that's a good way to have a conversation with yourself. 
Yeah, totally. I think I think you're totally right. It's the same way that you wouldn't want to go meet somebody who is blackout drunk and that you had to work with and make a judgment on them. They've been drinking. It changes the way you act and the way you look and the way you interact with people. Uh, whereas that like lack of sleep and bad health can change the way you interact with yourself. So it's important to give yourself a good first impression with yourself and with your thoughts, I think. I like that. Now, if I can transition for a, a moment into the Busy Head Project, let's just talk a little bit about what that is, how you came to it and what you're hoping to do. Yeah, absolutely. You know, like I said, I've been lifelong struggle with uh, my mental health. Uh, I grew up in a household where it was very common to talk about how you're feeling, which I am so grateful for. I always be grateful for my parents and my siblings for being open around the dinner table and letting that be as easy a conversation as what we saw at school or whatever, you know, how are you feeling? Um, and I still felt alone even through all that. Like I always felt like I was dealing with something uniquely terrible that no one else could understand. And I was never, I had a, I grew up in a rural area. And so there, the access to therapy was not great. We had, I grew up in a very privileged town, but we still didn't have great therapists. So, you know, you could spend all the money on you want. If someone isn't doing a good enough job, then it doesn't help either way. Um, so I found, I went to a bunch of different therapists and I never really found someone that connected. And maybe sometimes I wasn't ready to talk to them or, uh, they weren't good enough or whatever it was. So I looked for that for a long time. And eventually as music became such a big part of my life, I was looking for musicians that would speak to me and that would help me um, indirectly. I would look up like artists on Zoloft or like artists with depression. And I would find, I would look a lot and I wouldn't find a lot. But when I found someone talking about it, like if I heard a lyric that spoke about it or Connor Oberst who did an article, did a weird interview backstage years ago about Zoloft and or Prozac and what it was like to be on Prozac, like that. When I found those little nuggets of relatability in those artists, it would, it felt like I was like being saved. Like it felt like my life was better. And it was like the only thing, even with my parents and the therapists and the support system I had that made me feel truly okay. And so I started, you know, writing my songs about all these things. And, you know, we talked about Busy Head and we talked about there's songs across the new albums that talk about mental health. And I feel like I've been a, a champion of that in my music and trying to express that. And that's been great. And I'm great. I'm happy with it and proud of it. But as I've gotten more exposure, especially this year, I've had some more success, which has been awesome. I've kind of felt like I had an opportunity to put my money where my mouth is a little bit. And I'm playing bigger shows and I'm just like, as it goes, making more money, playing bigger shows. It's how it happens. And as I make more money, I wanted to, my team and I really wanted to find a way to donate a lot of it to these amazing organizations that are working on the mental health problem in our country and in Canada. And so that's where the Busy Head Project came from. Yeah. And I really dig the name because I feel like it's instantly destigmatizing when people think of themselves, it's like, look, you have a, like, I'll, I'll, I'll say to some people, look, you have an active mind and it's like, that's going to work for you in some situations. And that's going to really come back to haunt you in other situations. But if you can just sort of start with like, look, you, you got a busy head. That's okay. Yeah. You don't have to be so terrified of that. If you understand, cause it's like, I, I would have to imagine that to some degree, while you never want to look at something like anxiety or depression as like, oh, but there's something good that comes out of it. I'm not a, I mean, I think anxiety and depression is, is suffering. And so you don't want that to happen. But if there is a core of having an active mind that then can, can veer into these different things, but can also veer into this creativity and whatever, and then, then at least you can sort of say, all right, it's not just me being broken or fucked up or like I'm this guy have this horrible situation. It's like, look, you, you've got a situation that can kind of go different ways. I, I really like 
that if that's the intention of it, I really like that name as something that that just really cuts against the stigma right away. Totally. I think some of the people, I think Robin Williams said like depressed people are always creative and talented or something because they know how it feels to be that alone and be at the very bottom. And I think there is, I don't want to say, like you said, there's a being depressed and being anxious is good. It's definitely not an overall good thing, but I think there are parts of these feelings that lend themselves to positive human elements, us, uh, empathy, sympathy, and a real understanding of what someone might be going through because you've been through it yourself. It allows you to witness somebody else maybe coping in their own way that you've done before and understand that they're going through something and makes you more connected to them. Um, some of the funniest people I know are the most depressed. And I want people to not, I want to say wear it around like a badge of honor and accessorize your mental illness. I don't think anyone should do that. But I think it's okay to acknowledge that you're someone that has a busy mind or a busy head and you and you struggle and that you are somebody that's aware of it. And I think that's really cool. And I thought that when I was first described that way, I felt really heard and it felt really right for me. And it felt so right for the project. And uh, yeah, I'm glad that that's the moniker and that that's the direction we chose. Well, that is a... That is a good place, I think, to end. And Noah, thank you so much for taking the time to talk. It's, it's really, really psyched for you with how your career is taking off and the fact that you're taking the time to talk about these things and do this stuff. Just it's going to help a lot of people because it's like you said, when, when people see somebody like yourself with all the success, all the things, you know, and the way that your music helps people, they're naturally going to think, well, he's probably doing great. And knowing that you can be doing great, but still struggle with these things it can, I think is that, is that piece that people can say, look, you know, these are not inconsistent. There are people who are, like you said, living every day, doing things and they're just working at this stuff. And yeah, you know, someone who's listening might, you might be able to do that too. I totally agree. I, I love the phrase, wherever you go, there you are. Uh, I've always loved it just because it feels so true to me. And like, no matter how far you go in life, you always be taking care of your mental health and checking in yourself because you live with yourself all day and nobody else lives with you the way that you live with you. You are got to be your best roommate you can. And Mike, I just want to say thank you. Like listening to you speak about this stuff is really interesting to me. And I feel like I've learned a lot and I appreciate you letting me in to this conversation with you. No, absolutely, man. I hope we get a chance to talk again. Absolutely. So there it is. Noah Khan talking about his struggle with anxiety and depression and how he copes with being scared of his brain. Now, there's so much that we can take away from the conversation with Noah. But there was something Noah said right at the end that I wanted to highlight. You've got to be your best roommate. Now, some people refer to this idea as being your own best friend. And generally speaking, the way I understand this concept is you want to treat yourself the way you would treat someone else if you were being a good roommate or a good friend. So often on our mental health journey, we are unkind to ourselves in a way that we would never treat others. If a friend or roommate were struggling, we would often let them know we care, that we are there for them. We would probably start by asking and trying to understand what was happening, to tell us the whole story of what they were feeling, thinking, or experiencing, if they were anxious or depressed. And we'd help them figure out possible problem-solving and coping strategies to help them feel better. Perhaps we would contextualize the person's struggle in a more balanced light, such as Noah's concept of being a busy head. Letting the person know that having an active mind can feel like a blessing and a curse at times. But maybe most importantly, we would want them to feel like they're sharing their experience with us and being willing to take on their anxiety and depression was a sign of strength, not weakness, something that would be better for them as a person 
and bring us and them closer together for having gone through a difficult time. We would let them know that it's okay to be scared of their brain, but we are there with them to help. And we need to treat ourselves with the same compassion, comfort, and care that we would others as we explore our own busy heads on our mental health journey. I want to thank Noah for this wonderful conversation. This season of Going There is brought to you by AbV, who is driving the pursuit of better mental health. Over the last 30 years, AbV scientists and clinicians have worked to tackle the complexity of mental illness and today offer a portfolio of medicines and a pipeline of innovation that spans depression, anxiety, bipolar one disorder, and schizophrenia. To learn more about AbbVie's work to support individuals throughout their mental health journey, please visit www.abvie.com or follow at AbbVie on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and LinkedIn. This episode of Going There is also supported by Sage Therapeutics. Sage Therapeutics is a biopharmaceutical company fearlessly leading the way to create a world with better brain health. Their mission is to pioneer solutions to deliver life-changing brain health medicines so every person can thrive. For more information, please visit www.sagerx.com. And I, of course, want to thank Consequence Podcast Network and Sound Mind Live for including me in this wonderful project. And thanks to Pete Wilson and the Rooks for letting us use their song, I Know. If you are struggling with anxiety, depression, or addiction and are looking for help, please call the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration National Helpline at 1-800-622-4357. If you're thinking about harming yourself and want to seek help, please contact the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline at 988. You may also go to the Sound Mind Live and Consequence websites for more information. So be healthy, be safe, and be kind to yourself and others. See you next time at The Crossroads. Hey, it's Kyle Meredith, host of the Kyle Meredith with podcast presented by WFPK at WFPK.org and the Consequence Podcast Network. It's a series that puts the spotlight on iconic musicians and actors, inviting them to drop by and talk about their latest projects, whether it's albums, TV shows, films or beyond. I'm going to say something I don't want to say. Here it goes. Without Spinal Tap, there is no Tenacious D. (laughs) Whoa. (laughs) Man. We get great stories and the biggest scoops from people like Garbage's Shirley Manson, the 1975's Maddie Healy, Jack Black and Kyle Gass of Tenacious D, Maya Hawke, Kiefer Sutherland, and everyone in between. New episodes arrive every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, so it's a great way to keep up with your favorite artists and discover some new ones. You can find Kyle Meredith with on the Consequence Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcasts.